Hello, Hub listeners. Uh, Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of the Hub. Well, normally you'd be hearing Sean Spears' voice conducting a Hub dialogue, but I had to shoulder Sean out of the way today because we have an opportunity to talk to a big thinker who, i got to admit, I'm a, I'm a bit of a fanboy when it comes to his writing and books. He's someone I consistently turn to to kind of have my brain stretched in new directions. And I just love academics and scholars who've kind of done all the hard work for me and can write, again, big thoughts and big ideas about the sweep of human history. So I'm just so fortunate to have the opportunity to talk with Ian Morris about his new book, Geography is Destiny, Britain and the World, a 10,000-year history. Ian Morris is a historian and archaeologist who holds Stanford's prestigious Jean and Rebecca Willard Professorship in Classics. He's also a professionally trained archaeologist, having participated in important digs around the world. And he has associations with some of the world's most prestigious academic institutions, from the London School of Economics, the British Academy to the Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Toulouse and the Max Planck Institute. Ian, great to be in conversation with you. Well, thanks so much for having me on the the show under that very kind introduction. Ian, let's dive right into the book. And I just want to situate your considerable kind of contribution to our understanding of, of history and the importance of geography as a device, as a field of human knowledge and endeavor that can help us better understand our past and arguably give us some creative ways to think about the future. So why why the title of the book, Geography is Destiny? What is the argument you're trying to make here? Yeah, well, this is uh, the, the latest in a series of books I've been writing over the last 10, 15 years, where I, I started my career as a you know, pretty straightforward historian and archaeologist, looking at one particular part of the world over a reasonably short space of time. Uh, but what I found was that the bigger I made the geographical and chronological framework, the newer and more surprising answers started to come out. Until I got to the point I found myself talking about the, the whole world over thousands of years and generalizing broad sweeping theories about history. And then it, it kind of occurred to me that you know, these grand global theories, they're not really worth very much unless you can scale them back down to explain actual things that happen to, to real people. And um, so I'm thinking along these lines, then along comes Brexit, 2016, British vote to leave the European Union. And it just occurs to me, oh, of course, like, this is the perfect test case, the perfect place to take these grand theories and see, can we bring them back down to a more human scale? And admittedly, you know, for me, a more human scale is still 10,000 years long. But uh, so the qu- question I found myself asking was, well, can Britain's long-term geographical, geostrategic position in the world, does that help us understand what happened in June of 2016? Are there these long-term continuities? And the reason it's a 10,000-year history is um, 10,000 years ago is basically that's the point at which rising sea levels, as the glaciers melt at the end of the Ice Age, rising sea levels start cutting, um, well, start making the British Isles into isles because they're not isles up till then. And this is the point at which we see these two geographical facts which have dominated British history ever since. One being the fact that the British Isles are islands, crucial. Um, the other one being that they're really close to Europe. So there's like insularity and proximity. And so I start trying to look at this story 
ask myself, can I see long-term forces driving the outcomes we've recently had and where things are likely to go next? And if so, what are they? So that's kind of the basic thinking behind the book. Okay, well, let's dig into that because I think, you know, there is a bias out there. You know it, Ian, uh, that it's, you know, chaps, not maps, to reverse your phraseology, that define history. And if you're going to understand Brexit, well, you've got to understand, you know, the personalities of the moment of when that historical event occurred. But then more importantly, you're going to go back into history, you're going to study the great men, and let's hope we throw in a few great women too, to come up with a kind of chain of causality that leads from, you know, A to B to C. So so why maps, not chaps in this case, to understand Brexit? I, I want some data points. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the nice things with writing this book, like I was saying, it's an attempt to get down a little bit, at least a little bit more to the human level. Is It became a lot clearer to me as I was writing the book, the extent to which it's maps and chaps. And you take either end of that explanatory spectrum, you're going to miss a lot of what's going on. And, you know, Karl Marx has this famous line, middle of the 19th century, that men make their own history, but not in ways of their own choosing. I think he was absolutely right about that. And so, I mean, the title of the book, Geography is Destiny, and that's because really nothing that was said or done in the Brexit debate was in any way new. And it was like Brexit was the latest round of this 10,000-year-old argument that we can trace back in the history and the archaeology of people arguing about what do insularity and proximity mean, and what do we do with them? And the, kind of the, the story I felt came out of this long-term history was that while geography drives history, you, you can't ignore the geography, geography drives history, at the same time, History drives what geography means. And so insularity and proximity, they keep changing their meaning. And particularly because like, as technology and organization change, what the insularity and the proximity mean, that becomes abruptly different from one period to another. And so it's like geography is destiny, but it's up to us to decide what to do about it. And so that was kind of the, the, the basic idea running through the book. And so the, what I tried to do was sort of get into what was happening in each period of time and see how people... How well did they understand the cards that geography were dealing to them? And then how well did they play them? Because you get some people who just, they just don't get it. You know, they just never quite grasp what Britain's geography means for them. Then you get other people who, yeah, they get it, but then they just interpret it in such really stupid ways. It, it turns out disastrously. And so this, I think, is the, the, the storyline. If you want to be a, a great statesman, a great geostrategist, you must understand the geography, and then you must figure out what you do about it. Well, let's just experiment with the counterfactual. Let's say sea levels never rose. The trench wasn't filled in. The channel didn't exist. W would we have had Brexit? Would we even have a Britain, in your view, that is anywhere close to our understanding of the culture, the people, the dynamics of that society today? Yeah, it's a great question. I love counterfactual questions because I think they are the only way you can really think about causal questions. You say A, a caused B, then you're implicitly asking, well, what if not A? Do we still get B? And in this case, this counterfactual, like most of them, it gets a little bit tricky because, of course, you've got to ask yourself, well, how could we live in a world where the sea level didn't rise? Would the ice age did the ice age have to continue? Mm -hmm. And if it did, um, then of course you have the whole discussion is off the table. But so, but if we have the yeah, fantasy world where we can have the ice age end and still, for some reason, the waters don't fill up, 
channel. You've got some big, I don't know, something blocks it. Um, then I think British history, in some ways, it wouldn't have been wildly different. Um, in that, yeah, what happens like when the waters do rise? You get these three big phases of British history since the end of the Ice Age. And the first one, by far the longest, lasts till about the year 1500. You've got water in the channel. But it actually kind of doesn't matter that through most of British history, the Channel has been more of a highway than a barrier. Like if you can get to the continental side of the English Channel, you can pretty much automatically get to the English side as well, because the levels of technology and the organization of the governments are such that nobody can stop you. You can still capsize and drown, but barring that, you can get across the Channel. And so British history has almost always just been an extension of continental history. What you know, the, the great inventions and breakthroughs and developments all happen off to the south and east, down in the Mediterranean basin, the Middle East, India, China, and so on. Then they kind of roll north and west. So they get to the edge of Europe and they hop straight across the English Channel because it's simply a highway, not a belt. Wash across the British Isles, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, usually for a mix of those. And so that has been the standard story. If there were no English Channel, that would just have continued. And what makes British history so peculiar is that about 500 years ago, the British were able to reverse that story, suddenly make insularity trump proximity. They could close the English Channel. And that's when weird stuff starts to happen in British history. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of that weird stuff and maybe just an idea that some of our listeners are having tuning into this conversation about the effects of technology because it's really 500 years ago that you begin to have the the basis for uh, a technological revolution that completely transforms and changes British society it creates a British Navy that rules the seven seas, that creates in turn empire that allows for Britain to project force in ways that you know, you couldn't have predicted maybe or even conceived of for an earlier era of, of British history. So how does technology interact with geography to shape destiny? Yeah, technology is one of the big driving forces in the story. I say technology and just the organization of society, that these are constantly changing what geography means. So between you know, 8000 BCE, when the, the waters are starting to rise, and 1500 CE, obviously huge amount of technological change, but none of it is enough to affect the basic geographical facts in British history. Well, what changes that is starting in the 15th century, you're getting West Europeans, Portuguese especially, tinkering around developing new kinds of ships. And by the 16th century, they built these galleons. And the galleons, they're, they're kind of expensive, like sort of 16th century aircraft carriers. But they, they can do two things for you. And one is they can open the ocean. So these galleons can escort merchant ships across the Atlantic. It's still a bit risky to cross the Atlantic, but it's becoming reasonably safe and predictable. The Atlantic, which had been a barrier through the whole of history, just too big for anybody to cross with a couple of minor exceptions. Atlantic is turned into a highway linking Western Europe to North America and then onto the rest of the world. So these galleons open up the Atlantic, prove that Britain is no longer the edge of the world, but it had been for, for so long. So Britain, not the edge of the world anymore. But then what you can also do with these galleons, so the English sailors start to realise this around about the 1560s, 1570s. You can put them into the English Channel and you can close the channel. For the first time in history, you can deny uh, a rival the use of the seas in the way that is sort of you know, standard fare 
or naval strategists today talk about your know, command of the oceans. Command of the oceans meant nothing before about 1550. So then you get these guys saying, aha, now here's an idea. We have been like shaking in our boots for a generation or two now about the power of the Spaniards. They control the Atlantic. They can cross the English Channel anytime the mood takes them. Well, now they can't. And they go and tell Queen Elizabeth this. And she is yeah, profoundly skeptical about this. She never entirely bites the bullet on this one. But this new idea has come up. You can close the channel, cut England, because England, Scotland, Ireland, separate uh, countries at this point, more or less. You can protect England from any continental interference. Then secure behind your moat defensive, as they call it. This is a Shakespeare line. It's no coincidence. Shakespeare starts all this talk about England being this you know, blessed plot, this, uh, with secure behind the silver seas and moat defensive. This is all in the 1590s, because a century before that, simply made no sense. So Shakespeare talking about a moat defensive. English government say, aha, we can hide behind the moat defensive. We can unite the whole of the isles into a single kingdom, and we can create this global empire if we want to. That's the big question. Do we want to do that? And that's where the organization thing comes in, because this is like super expensive. You can't just have the boats. You've got to have new kinds of governments that can raise enough money consistently to build a lot of these boats and keep them at sea year after year after year. And this is a very new thing. And on the whole, English people say, Yo, I don't want a government that can reach down into the bottom of my pocket and steal all my money. Because that's kind of what the deal is here. You know, we will give you Shakespeare's blessed plot and you give us all your money. And then we'll make more money with it. This is the deal they're trying to strike. And so you get this sort of century of upheavals in the British Isles, the civil wars of the 17th century, the most obvious example of this. But these are basically arguments about what do we think geography means? Where do we think England and then Britain as a whole fit into the larger world? So it's a really violent process. And geography is dealing Britain these cards, technology and organisation, showing what the cards mean. But then you've still got to decide, do you really want to go down that? You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. So was Brexit inevitable? If you have a thesis of view that Britain developed this consciousness of itself as not only succinct and different from the continent geographically, but that that difference then compelled and produced for the country an incredible multi-century period of, of global preeminence, then doesn't Brexit seem like a very natural kind of intuitive reaction to a British people who felt under stress, under threat in a variety of ways, real or imagined? Yeah, I mean, I would say not, not inevitable. I, mean, I tend to think that pretty much nothing is inevitable in history. It's just that sometimes the, the cards uh, favor one decision so heavily over other ones, and it becomes more or less inevitable. But yeah, with, with Brexit, I think you get this period starting to emerge around 1500, very much emerged by 1700 where the English and, by extension, the British see themselves as the centre of the world. And in some ways, they are the centre of the world, they project power globally. 
And then by 1900, it's starting to fall to pieces. And actually, it falls to bits really for the same reasons it was <clears throat> created in the first place. So changing technology and organization change the meanings of geography. So basically, the world keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller, about 1500 on. And for, like, couple hundred years, there's this sweet spot where the British can, well, if you're British, it's sweet, where you can dominate the globe from your position at the edge of Europe. By 1900, Britain can no longer do that. There are much greater piles of money have accumulated in North America, Western Europe. British thrashing around for ways to preserve their global dominance. And this, of course, this is the period when Brit some British start floating ideas like imperial preference, like a union with Britain's overseas white settler dominions like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and that they'll create a, a new kind of British global dominance. But the British basically thrashing around, looking for ways to either to preserve the old system or to say to themselves, okay, we cannot do that. So what is the best new state for, for Britain to take on in this changed geography? There's a, a very famous line, Dean Acheson, uh, one time Secretary of State in the US, said, Great Britain has lost an empire and not yet found a role. And everyone in Britain was mortally offended by this. But the guy was right. I and mean, this has really been what post-World War II British grand strategy has been about. What is the role now that the 19th, 18th to 19th century empires, they just don't function anymore. Ridiculous to try to defend them because we'll lose apart from anything else. Um, so what are we going to do instead? And Brexit is part of this long-term debate, going back at least to Roman times. Should Britain try to basically to cozy up to the continent, to see itself, uh, its destiny is primarily continental, or is its destiny really different and insular? And uh, the big question, of course, is, well, what is geography now telling us? Um, was Brexit, in fact, a smart decision? Or, and I think the way, actually, the way people are going to judge Brexit, say, 50, 60 years from now, they'll look back on this and say, you know, what, what actually mattered in 2016 wasn't Brussels. It was Beijing. Uh, you know, what's happening now, the big thing that's happening, of course, is the accumulation of this East Asian mountain of money, the power of China. The way they're going to judge Brexit is say, well, as geography changes meanings, did Brexit, did leaving the European Union improve Britain's position relative to the great Chinese mountain of money or make it worse? I think that's the question they'll ask in, in half a century's time. Well, and that's exactly where I want to go next. Apply these lenses of the first, the big lens, the focal lens of geography, and then organization and technology to China. Do you see a similar you know, kind of hinge moment in in history where these various factors line up. And I, I think everyone could understand the argument in terms of technology and organization where China is surging in terms of its ability to project influence and, and shape the global order. I guess I haven't done enough thinking about Chinese geography. Is, is this an asset in the same way that geography somehow became this lever in the United Kingdom to propel global power and dominance, again, far beyond what anyone could have reasonably expected from the British Isles. What's your view on, on China's geography? Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the nice things about writing this book was that it kept striking me as I was writing the book, how the basic methods I was developing, these can be applied to any part of the planet. I mean, they are 
analytical tools for thinking about what drives history. And this struck me particularly. I was invited to a conference in Kathmandu in Nepal, which was great. I'd never been to Nepal before. And, and Nepal, you know, its geography is about as different from Britain's as you can possibly imagine. You know, landlocked, mountainous, trapped between the Indian and Chinese giants. And a geography has driven Nepali history every bit as strongly as British history, but just you know, in different ways, um, because it's, it's a different place. Different places are different. And China, uh, yeah, of course, exactly the same sorts of things apply in China. Chinese geography, very, very different from Britain's. And this is something people have been thinking about a long time. This is classic essay by Halford McKinder, the British geographer from 1904, um, talking about how you know, the world breaks down in what he kind of called a kind of core area within the Eurasian heartland, then the inner rim, the countries around the edge of the Eurasian landmass, so from China through India, Middle East to Western Europe, then the outer rim, countries which but directly onto the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And through most of history, the inner rim had been dominant, places like Britain, total backwaters. Then you get this big revolution starting around 1500. Now outer rim countries, first Britain, then the US, and McKinder was just beginning to see the rise of Japan when he starts writing about this. These countries become dominant because by controlling the oceans, now you can project power inward from the oceans into the inner rim. And that's why the British shoot up the Chinese fleet in the 1840s, dictate terms to China. And for a full century, what the Chinese call the century of humiliation, this is what the maps mean. The outer rim dominates the inter inner rim. Then that uh, is not yet entirely changed. But Chinese geography has changed. Part of it because of kind of organizational agreements. China is able to negotiate its way into the World Trade Organization, other groups, bring itself into the American-dominated global order. And once they do that, their geography abruptly changes meaning. And so the first big thing I think any Chinese strategist would say to you, if you ask this question, would be, well, the big fact in China's geography now is what they call the island chain. It's a chain of alliances running from Japan down to uh, Singapore or Australia that the Americans constructed after World War II. Basically kind of constrains China. It has the potential to shut China off from access to the Pacific Ocean. Catastrophic effects that will have for the Chinese economy. So for China, the question geography is forcing on them is, how do we deal with this geographical problem? One answer is you break the island chain, either through negotiation, through cutting deals with Korea and other places, or through violence, you attack Taiwan. The other answer is you outflank the island chain. You build the Belt and Road Initiative across Central Asia, down to the Indian Ocean, out to the Mediterranean, and you do all your maritime connections um, over. It's a little less convenient, but you can do it. You can get around the American island chain. So I think um, Chinese strategists would say, well, absolutely. And this is exactly the sorts of problems that we're dealing with. So the peripheral countries will try to continue to fight for the primarily the naval dominance that allowed them historically to advantage themselves over the larger landlocked great powers. It's a fascinating way to look at it. You know, I want to end on just a little bit of a personal confession. You know, over the course of this horrible war that we've seen break out in Europe, the first major conflict since World War II, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I've been thinking about you and I've been thinking about your book that really had a big impact on me, which was War, What Is It Good For?, everything. And the final chapter of that book, Ian, where you presented a, I think for me, a really, again, compelling way of looking at this moment of history that we're in the middle of. This contest, as you put it, between nightfall, where our technologies, including, as we're seeing in Ukraine, far too much discussion of the risk of nuclear weapons, 
kind of swamps our innovation and our ability to manage kind of complexity. And I'm just wondering, you know, you wrote that book a, a while ago now. There's been some time. I'm wondering where, how you're feeling at this kind of this moment and whether you feel that the forces of nightfall are in ascendancy or whether you're still optimistic, not that you were necessarily optimistic in the book. You said it was a very kind of even and uncertain race between humanity's capacity to, to kind of innovate versus our capacity to destroy ourselves. So I'm just... Would love to check in with you on that thesis. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, I mean, Ukraine is a, I think, a classic illustration of the geography is destiny thesis. I mean, even the name Ukraine probably comes from an old Slavonic word meaning borderlands. I mean, if you're given the choice, never live in a place called the okay. borderlands because everybody's going to fight over you. So in a way, there's nothing terribly surprising about what's happened. I think you know, what what. The reason it's come to so many of us as a shock is that it seemed like we developed a new equilibrium where the use of violence to resolve major international problems, the, the costs were always going to outweigh the benefits. And so no great power is again likely to resort to force, especially if it sets you off down the nuclear path. And I think for you know, all kinds of reasons, Vladimir Putin has drawn a different conclusion from what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years. And I'd say the Ukrainian conflict, you know, coming back to your larger question about nightfall, in a way, this might turn out to be one of the, the benchmarks by which we can judge the progress toward or away from nightfall. Putin has been talking about the possibility of using nuclear weapons. You know, there's this bizarre Russian idea they've been floating for like 20 years now about escalating to de-escalate. You, you use nuclear weapons in order to send a message to the West that if you continue supplying weapons to Ukraine, we're going to escalate still further. It's kind of a nutty theory, but some people apparently take it seriously. And so there are all kinds of indications that this conflict could be hastening or speeding up our move toward nightfall. It's beginning to look now like maybe that isn't going to happen. And I think it might be, if all goes well in the Ukrainian conflict, this might be something that over the next 20 years, People like Xi Jinping you know, keep looking back on Ukraine and saying, well, what we learned from that episode is that force is still not a good way to try to resolve your problems. Invading Taiwan, I'm sure it has a lot of attractions to some strategists in Beijing, but it's a really bad idea that the West actually is going to stand together and talking about escalating to nuclear weapons, just talking about it, that's not going to do it. The, the only way you could really frighten people is by actually escalating, and then it, it's going to get really appalling really, really quickly. And this was a lesson of all the war games that the Rand Corporation and other people ran during the Cold War. No, you, you can't play with nuclear weapons. So the minute you start down this path, it, all bets are going to be off. And so I'm hoping, in my optimistic mood, <laughs> hoping that this is the outcome of the Ukrainian war. People say, wow, here was the definitive lesson that since 1945, since the invention of nuclear weapons, the whole the, the rules of the game have changed. And that you know, whatever happens, Ukraine is always going to be a geographical problem for any Russian ruler. If you're a ruler in, in Moscow, you're going to be terrified of the thought of having a hostile Ukraine just because of the geography. But the way to deal with that problem is not by invading them. It's trying, by trying to make the Ukrainians like you, the way the Europeans have done. Excellent. Ian Morris, thank you so much for coming on the Hub Dialogues today. And I just urge readers, if you've not dived into 
Ian's collection of really interesting, important books on history, international relations, geopolitics do that. And no better place to start than Geography is Destiny, written and the world, a 10,000-year history. We'll also put up on the Hub webpage featuring a transcription of this interview links to Ian's other recent books, including War, What Is It Good For?, a top 10 nonfiction book on my list. And I look forward to, Ian, the chance to talk to you again. It's always such a privilege. Thank you again for coming on the show. Well, thank you again. It's great to talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening. 